The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Volvo. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear, by going to volvocars.com US. And by the Sundance Now Doc Club, the new streaming service for everyone who loves documentaries. Discover unforgettable films handpicked by programmers like Susan Sarandon, Ira Glass, and others. To get a free 30-day trial, go to docclub.com political. That's D-O-C-C-L-U-B dot political. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code POLITICAL. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 5th, 2015. This Gab Fest is on Background Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine joins me from New Haven. Where are you, yes. Emily? Oh, no, that's true. I thought we could make a secret of it since we're on background. Yes, I am in New Haven. Uh, it, it's right. I, someone says that Emily is in New Haven. And John Dickerson of Face the Nation is... Where are you, John? I'm in Manchester, New Hampshire. In Manchester, New Hampshire. So we're going to stop. We're going to just like pause for a minute to quell because John's first show is this weekend. So if you do not watch Sunday shows, now you have something to do on Sunday morning. John, what time is Face the Nation on? Well, you'll have to, it depends on your, lo- you have to check your local listings. It's on 1030 in D.C., but you have to check your local listings. Um, awesome. Are you, are, are you nervous, excited, a combination of nervous and excited, I, I, bored? I'm nervous and excited, which is also in the name of the band. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited. Um, it occurs, you know, all the, like, questions that you one comes up with in the course of reporting during the week and just watching the news. Um, it's great to be able to do something with all those questions. And um, so it's going to be really fun. It's just going to be, you know, I mean, I've hosted the show before, but it's the difference between babysitting and being a parent. Um, so now I'm... That, wait, I'm I said parent. that last week. That was I my know. line. I know. Oh. I was hoping you <laughs> and would, it is stuck. It's worth repeating, David. I was hoping David. you would, like, recognize your, your genius as being totally incorporated into my new line. That's um, good. I'm, I'm thrilled. <laughs> anyway, so um, it's great. And the people I'm working with who do the show are uh, are really great, too. So it's like, you know, it could be, you could imagine lots of tension and uh and just start up angst, but there uh, there hasn't been any, and that's been really great too. All right, so GabFest listeners, it's your duty. There, are so many of you go out watch the show, boost the Nielsen's, help John, um, and oh yeah, it's all about the GabFest helping face the nation, not the other way around whatsoever. <laughs> we don't it's, need them. It's <laughs> it's one seamless loving connection of people in this tapestry of humanity that we are a part of. Wow. If, that, if that's the kind of crap that's going to be on the show, I'm definitely not watching it. <laughs> Do you say tapestry? I'm I not going to watch it. Uh, what's wrong with the tapestry? Would you like some other kind of um, garment? Mosaic, David. Does that mosaic please you a more? Multicolored... A mosaic of humanity. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's a good question. Mosaic seems like slightly easier to put together. Tapestry feels like a lot of work. Ugh. On this week's Gabfest, the Supreme Court gets all First Amendment-y with big decisions about free speech and freedom of religion. 
then does the press hate Hillary Clinton or has the press rolled over for Hillary Clinton? Which one? And also, what does on background mean? Anyway, John and Emily will explain this to me. I've Honestly, it's one of the great embarrassments of my life that I still don't exactly understand that. You don't and understand then, it because there's no agreed upon meaning. Okay, wait. We'll save it. Save it. Save it for the segment. And then call me Caitlin, what we've learned from Caitlin Jenner's arrival. Plus, we'll have Cocktail Chatter and in Slate Plus, the book that actually changed how John and Emily and I see the world. Or three different books. books. One of each of us. <laughs> The books, the books. For for more grammar and uh, use of plurals, we're going to have a live show on July 29th in Washington, D.C. Slate.com slash GabFestDC. Slate.com slash GabFestDC. It's at 7 o'clock at 6th and I. Uh, it's going to be great. We haven't done a live show in D.C. in a long time. 6th and I is a fantastic space. There will also be a cocktail party beforehand, we, which we will ticket separately, but just go buy your tickets to the show now they, it'll be ticketed separately. You'll you'll get a chance to buy those cocktail tickets later, and Slate Plus members get a significant discount on the ticket. So we please come on out to Sixth and I, July 29th, Slate.com/slash/gabfestdc. The Supreme Court clearing its throat for the huge Obamacare and gay marriage decisions in a few weeks handed out two major First Amendment style rulings this week. Although, as Emily will get to, they probably actually aren't really about the First Amendment. In the Alanis case. The court held that online threats are not necessarily crimes unless the uh, intent of the threat maker, in this case a a vicious troubled jerk named Anthony Alanis, unless his intent is considered as uh, part of the judgment about whether there's a crime. Again, Emily's going to explain this. She's going to bring truth to whatever it is I'm saying in a minute, but we'll just start with my my description. And then in a case (laughs) that... uh, that brought shivers to the rippling six-packs of Abercrombie & Fitch executives. The court ruled that it was a violation of religious liberty for Abercrombie & Fitch to reject a headscarf-wearing job applicant in the way that it did because it was a form of religious discrimination. So, Emily, pick the case you want to start with and start explaining it. Oh, let's start with the headscarf case. You know, this case feels righteous to me based on the facts, and now I'm trying to think what's going to come out of it. So here's the righteous part. Samantha Eloff wears a headscarf, goes into Abercrombie & Fitch, applies for a job, gets rated as a good hire, but she's wearing a headscarf. And so the person who interviews her says to a higher-up, hey, is this a problem? Does this violate our policy against wearing caps? And is told, yes, it does violate our policy. And so then must have told Elof, you know what, we'd like to hire you, but we can't because of your headscarf. And Elof sued. This is actually technically the lawsuit is from the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. But essentially what Justice Scalia said for most of the court is that Title VII says you can't refuse to hire someone because of his or her religion or religious practice. And that's clearly what happened here. To the extent there's a dispute going on among the justices, there's because there's a concurrence um, from Alito and a dissent from Clarence Thomas or something like that. I may be mixing up the two that's cases. Right. But that's essentially, right. oh, good. <laughs> and essentially what they're arguing about is whether the employer should have to have actual knowledge of the religious practice. In other words, does it matter that it's really pretty clear here that Abercrombie and Fitch thought that the headscarf was being worn for religious reasons, or should Elof have had to come out and say, hey, by the way, I wear this headscarf because I'm Muslim, and if you have a problem with that, well, I have the freedom 
to wear it as a matter of freely practicing my religion. So that's really a question about where the burden lies in a case like this. Is it with the plaintiff having to prove that she told why she was wearing the headscarf? Or is the employer take on the burden of, well, we saw this headscarf, obviously we could infer why she was wearing it, and we should have known that this was a violation of her religious rights if we didn't hire her. And I wonder what you guys think about that going forward. Are we better off in a world in which employers have to make fairly logical deductions from people's religious present presentation of themselves? Or do we want the religious adherents to have to say, hey, you know, I just want to flag this for you? Can I actually ask him a different question before we get to your question, Emily, which is, sure. let's say she says, I wear this headscarf because I'm Muslim. I This is my religious practice. She's like very straight up. She tells them and they're like, you know what? It's really important that that Abercrombie and Fitch employees, this comes from our corporate directors, that they have good hair that they're showing all the time. So you have to show your hair or we're not going to hire you. You just can't be hired. Is that okay? Are they then are they allowed to have a job requirement which bars her from working there? Why not? No, they're right, not. Emily, isn't not... that right? No, right? Isn't that the basically wow. the, only... the Thomas position? So the Thomas position, yes. the one dissent was, wait, this is unfair because there's a standard for everybody, regardless of religion, that has to do with hair. And so it's unfair to make them change their uh, rule that they have for totally non-religious reasons in order to protect, right? Right. So this is an old fight that we've talked about before in religious liberty cases and contexts where years ago, this was Justice Scalia's uh, position in in regard to the First Amendment. It was if you have a neutral, generally applicable law, if someone says, hey, I need an exception for my religious views, that person shouldn't win. Scalia's opinion in the Peyote case, Employment Division versus Smith, was essentially overturned by Congress. Um, That's why we have all the Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. So that's just context, because now we're in the land of the federal statute, Title VII, which protects against employment discrimination. But I think it's a really interesting question. So it doesn't mean that you could show up and say, you know, hey, by the way, my religion holds that you can't work Monday through Friday, but I want a job anyway and you have to accommodate my schedule, right? You still are going to have some kind of reasonable accommodation wiggle room here. And I'm not sure why Abercrombie and Fitch would be able to argue that you can't be a good Abercrombie and Fitch salesperson and wear a headscarf. You mean what? how they would have to show... Presumably, some real damage to their, like why the why the interest was greater for proper head, whatever. Are they allowed to do that? And protecting yeah. religious that? belief, right? I mean, presumably, a right. strip club. You can, you someone who's a you know an Orthodox Jewish woman goes to apply to 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 be a dancer at a strip club. Because that happens a lot. Those Orthodox well, look, Jewish women. I, it's all the land. It's all the land. It's all the land. We live in the land of stupid hypotheticals. It's your Supreme Court that poses <laughs> these stupid hypotheticals. But that's so, like a really ridiculous one because the whole thing about being an Orthodox Jewish wo- woman is that you don't you don't show those parts of your body. But okay, okay go right, ahead. But, okay, no, but that's let's what say, this but it's going to be a super edgy strip club. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what? What? But on what? Are, she, are they allowed to not hire her on the grounds that she won't? I don't understand. It, this well, seems okay, to me. I'm with, I'm with Clarence you, Thomas you here. I'm with Clarence Thomas. I don't understand why you can't. Employer in the United States, the United States military. You can't have a headscarf in the military, right? 
Well, that's because the guy wearing his kippah lost years ago, the guy in the Navy. And maybe he shouldn't have lost. Maybe we think that's silly because, like, what is it really? But essentially, in that case, the Supreme Court said we're not messing around with military military regulations. You might even just carve that out as, like, a special military rule. The amount I, so of David, religious your, accommodation your this country gives to people is absurd. This country what is are so, you talking about? I don't, what is I don't so, want to go. What do we do? I don't want to be. I don't want to be in. I don't want to be France, where you know you 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 show up with a headscarf and you can't go to public school. But well, this good because that does. This seem does not seem to me. Biased. This does not seem to me. This does not seem to me. Look, Abercrombie and Fitch. If you think they're a bunch of you know anti-Muslim prejudiced employers, don't shop there. Boycott them. Announce it. But like as a private employer, to make the to make the fact that they want people to to show their their flashy hair as a condition of employment. That seems to me a totally legitimate thing that a private employer can do. Totally huh. legitimate. I really guess I disagree with that. I mean, I I understand the appeal of Thomas's position about neutral, generally applicable laws, but that's just not very much in line with the religious freedom tradition in this country. And to me, the reasonable accommodation line and test seems like the right one. I mean, maybe it's not reasonable to wear, uh, you know, a, a wig if you're an Orthodox Jewish woman or a headscarf if you really want to be a religious person working in a strip club. And maybe the strip club should win and Abercrombie and Fitch should lose because I just can't see why if you walked into an Abercrombie and Fitch, you would care whether the salesperson was wearing a headscarf Well, it's not. a stupid, it's a st- pretty stupid rule. I'm not saying it's not, I'm not saying it's one that, that I would have. But if it's a stupid rule, my, then we don't, business. we shouldn't well, but, have but, people be what, able to discriminate it, against it, religious people based on it. If it's their business and they've made a decision, like they made a decision, it's really important for us economically that we do this. Seems to me like that's okay. So you don't think, so it's a do you think business. the Title Seven saying that employers can't reject people for religious practice because of our religious practice? Do you think Title Seven should be overturned or do you think the court over interpreted it in an overbroad way here? I don't know that it should be rejected, but I think that if you want the accommodation, you if you're the the employee who wants the accommodation, you've got to take some steps. I don't see why we have to why we have to privilege every single thing that someone says is essential to their religion. Well, the take some steps idea is actually the question I started out with, which is like maybe the applicant does have to put the employer on notice. But then when I was thinking about the job interview, do you really want to have to bring this up on your own? Shouldn't they at least like have to give you an opening? Because it seems like a lot in a job interview to be like, oh, by the way, yeah, yeah. I wear a headscarf and I can't take I don't know. That and seems also, like- you don't know necessarily what, which of your religious practices are going to conflict or clash against their hiring practices. I mean, you don't know where. So then it's a religious test because because presumably anything could conf- I mean if cuz since it would be hard to draw the line so for example what if on saturdays you couldn't work because you were at uh, you know you'd have to kind of outline all of your different religious practices and then doesn't it become kind of a you're having to pass a, t- a certain test based on religion and that doesn't seem right I think that's right. And also just the, I mean, the the rare times I've been in a position where I ended up giving some long explanation about my own religious practices, I always get a little red in the face and like embarrassed that I'm having to explain this weird thing that people don't know about with words they don't know, the whole thing. It's not, it's, it's not a, it doesn't feel like a confidence inducing moment. And I wouldn't particularly, if I could avoid doing that in a job interview, I would far prefer it. I. Uh- 
Man. David is unmoved. I, I've I've hijacked this conversation in a really stupid way um, with my I don't think file. So. so let's let's talk about the other case, Emily. Alanis. Yeah, Anthony Alanis. I'm sure we talked about him months we ago. Did. He's we the have, guy yeah. right. So he's the guy who wrote these really vile in my view, clearly threatening Facebook messages to his ex-wife. And uh, he won, I guess. I mean, he's already done his prison time. It's not even really clear what happens next to this case. And I just have to note that he got out of prison last year. Well, now he's back in jail because he was living with another woman who said she didn't feel safe with him. Her mom came and he allegedly hit the mom on the head with a pot. So he's sounding like a real winner, this guy. But in any case, what happened to this case in front of the Supreme Court? Most of the justices sided with Chief Justice John Roberts in an opinion that said that the jury instructions were wrong because they allowed the jury to find Alanis guilty simply based on the reasonable fear that his ex-wife would have had of these messages, not based on anything about his own state of mind. And what Roberts points out is that in the criminal law, you almost always have some kind of knowledge, state of mind requirement involving the, the alleged criminal as opposed to the audience. But then Robert stopped short of answering what the standard would be. And so the criticism from Alito in particular on this one is, and I think Thomas too actually, is wait a second, tell the lower courts like what standard they're supposed to be using here. And Alito and Thomas both think that recklessness would be a, a good standard to use. So the idea would be that the jury doesn't have to find that Alanis intended these messages as a threat, just that he either knew they were a threat or might have known, should have known. That's essentially what recklessness is. That seems like a pretty good compromise position to me. Um, it wasn't really briefed. So, you know, in that way, the Supreme Court kind of like applies the brakes and says, next case for that one, it's not resolved, which I don't think is going to be helpful for the lower courts. And I, my fear about this case is we're going to see even fewer of these kinds of true threat prosecutions, which is bad because a lot of these <laughs> threats are going on online, and when they're made by people in a kind of domestic violence context, which is what this was, where you have a restraining order, you have some proof of, you know, potential for violence, there is a really strong correlation between making threats like this and actually hurting someone. And then there's also just the cost of being threatened and, and what that fear, how it can make you change your life in ways that are really burdensome. This is not just free speech. And actually, this wasn't a First Amendment case. The court also didn't get into that. Um, but anyway, those are the sort of ripple effects of this decision that we're just going to have to see how they play out next. Emily, if this guy does go and commit a crime or does anything close to the things he was threatening uh, doing, could then what was once considered merely an expression of free speech be used against him to show motive? Yeah, sure. I mean, motive is like not an actual requirement of showing a crime, but it could certainly be used. I mean, certainly the prosecutor would introduce it as evidence if there was not a guilty plea. Yes, it would be relevant to his state of mind, to showing, you know, what he was thinking about doing. It's all like it's all it would pass the relevance test. Is the crime of a threat the threat or the the damage of harm, the damage, the psychological damage that the the person threatened feels. It's the latter, but thus also the former, right? So the line about this from Justice O'Connor is, 
you know, threats don't have to be carried out to cause real harm. And that's why we ban them even when they're just speech. There are clear and present danger, right? That's when we, one of the exceptions to freedom of speech under the First Amendment is if it poses a clear and, and present danger. And there is, um, the Supreme Court has said that threats fit that standard. But, but if, I sit, if I sit around muttering in my house, like, I'm going to, you know, kill her, I'm going to you know, take her, that is, that's not a threat. It's only when, it's only when the threat is made in such a way that somebody receives yes, it. Yes, that's right. That and, it becomes but is it received it? I thought the whole point in this case was that he didn't. Isn't there also something about whether you know what you're doing is going to threaten another? So to David's muttering example, if he mutters and then you hear it and you feel threatened, but he doesn't know you're hearing it, wasn't that the case here that, the, that basically the ruling was that, um, that it, the, the, the conviction was based on the premise that he was convicted without proof that he knew that what he was writing uh, would be right. a threat. Isn't there something about he, the, what's in Yeah, because he so. made this, in my view, completely uh, implausible argument that this was therapy for him. He's really, uh, you know, stars-crossed rap artist, and he didn't intend these as threats in the least bit. That, that it wasn't for the purpose of making a threat or with knowledge of making a threat that he was um, putting out these posts. I mean, in my view, if the jury had been correctly instructed, they still would have convicted him because that just is clearly a ruse. Like, there... <laughs> It just doesn't hold up when you look at the evidentiary record, the timing of the restraining order and when he was posting what. I find it just to be completely implausible. Um, and so in that sense, in this case, I don't think the standard matters that much. It's looking looking ahead to, OK, if you're the cops and you have these threats and you're thinking and the prosecution, you're a prosecutor, you're thinking about pressing charges. Are you now worried? Well, gee, now I have to, like, show that this guy, you know, knew or um issued them for the purpose of making a threat. And, and if recklessness isn't good enough, is that too high a bar? Maybe I just won't bring this case to begin with. That's what I'm somewhat concerned about. I, I think I've changed my position since we talked about this last time, and I'm much more simple. I think I'm aligned with you on this, Emily. I think so oh dear, we agree. Uh, oh, well. Uh, yeah, we, we agree. Oh, dear. John, do you, want, do you oh, care to disagree? To do, you care, do, you, do, you, do you care to Do you care to stand up for, for extreme free speech in this case? No, that's your position, no. David. I know, but maybe John, now that he's you know, now that he's hosting a major network television program, he's like, I, he's taking on a whole new set of. Uh, Actually, positions. the first thing he's going to say on Sunday morning is that he dearly wishes to strangle David Plotz. That's going to be his first line. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I wouldn't care if he said that. The GAFES is sponsored this week by Volvo. It's time to experience the wonder of summer. Leave early, wander more, stargaze, do it all. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years of full coverage, including wear and tear. The Wonder of Summer event from Volvo. Go to volvocars.com US or test drive a Volvo at your local dealer. The poor Hillary Clinton campaign last Thursday, they nicely invite a bunch of journalists, including our very own John Dickerson. He'll tell us, give us details. No, he will not. They invite them in to talk strategy and preparation. Everyone agrees it's on background. Again, we're going to talk about what that means. And the result is a flurry of news stories excoriating the campaign for A, putting dumb stuff on background, B, inviting people in, uh, not telling them much information, trying to control information flow, not being as helpful to reporters as reporters want them to be helpful to. 
Glenn Greenwald and John Harwood in particular lashed out about the stupidity. So, John, you were there. Can you tell us that you were there or not? Sure, I can tell you I was there. I can tell you it was a background briefing by um, Clinton officials. I, um, you can tell us it was singularly uninteresting from everything I can tell. Yeah. So here's the here's the problem. And I, as I say, I bounce around on this a lot. So if a candidate is um, fully participating in what we used to expect candidates to do, which is lots of unscripted public appearances with interactions with voters, so like town halls where, the, where it's not all scripted, or you know, even little roundtable events where it's not all hand-picked, and they are presenting themselves the candidate in particular, to the press at regular intervals for more than just press conferences that feel like they're being done on the moving walkway in the airport, you know, the press standing still and the candidates zooming by on their way to the next stop, then, um, then it's terrible to have background briefings because what they're trying to do is they're not interacting with voters, they're not interacting with the press, but yet they're getting to shape the stories by telling you information that's then shielded by the anonymity presented from background briefings. Um, and so the first, the best example of this was in the 2000 race, George Bush used to come on the back of the plane and talk to the reporters who flew with him on the back of the plane. And it was a kind of a chatty, off-the-record, mostly baloney stuff, but, um, you know, you'd get some insight into him, you'd talk about books or baseball, or you'd get a rounder vision of the candidate. And that went on for a lot of the campaign. And then suddenly in August, things got so bad for the campaign, they just stopped giving interviews. And so all the reporters at the back of the plane said, well, he can't come back and talk to us if he's not going to do anything on the record. In other words, he can't get the benefit of this kind of more relaxed atmosphere if he's not going to actually also answer questions. And so for the Clinton campaign is they've been trying to run a super careful, highly limited rollout here where Hillary Clinton goes to events with handpicked audiences and and puts forward this tableau, answers questions, but usually only a handful in number and quite infrequent, um, and in a kind of clipped way. And since the campaign's doing that, it puts more of a, it makes these background briefings a little bit more um, suspect. I think in this particular one, what was a problem is that there wasn't that much that was conveyed. And so the point of a background briefing is to exchange lots of information. It doesn't have to be negative information. It allows the, the officials to be candid and speak colloquially without having to worry that, you know, some independent clause or sorry, some dependent clause that they use will be spliced and sent out on Twitter and, you know, ruin the campaign for two days. And I'm sympathetic to that because it's so hard to have an actual honest conversation with the microphones everywhere. And so I don't necessarily mind that. But if if you're doing the one and not the other, you it, things get quite out of whack. So, th- so these campaign officials went on background. Did you end up writing anything about this, John? No, be for that reason. I mean, I, and it was it was informative and will be useful in my coverage of the campaign in the sense that I have some larger sense of their worldview, and it's also nice to put faces with names. But because the whole thing was on background, it's not a news you can't write I mean, about. Isn't, it. I mean, or I chose. Is it part of the question of level of frustration with this format where you are in the journalism food chain? So, you know, you didn't feel any pressure to write about it. And then the fact that it's 
what it is is less problematic. But if you're someone who's supposed to be churning out daily coverage, then you're more kind of chained to the way they're trying to do it. You know, I felt like I could sense in the little item that Maggie Haberman and Amy Chozik did for The Times without, you know, saying anything that was unfair or wrong. I felt like they made it clear that, you know, there was a lack of candor at this event. It was a really short item they wrote up. um, And you could sort of sense perhaps some frustration, um, you know, just below the surface. That's the crucial point is also right. I do. I cover campaigns in a in a different way. And so for the Daily Beat reporters, you're being starved for on the record material that sets the public record of the campaign. And that stuff has to all be on the record. Can we talk about quote approval? Because I've been struggling with this myself lately. So New York Times bans quote approval. Good. Fine. I agree with that. Explain what quote quote approval approval is. is you have a conversation I guess, on-the-record conversation? No. No, no, you have it on background, and then you check quotes. Right. Okay. So what I struggle with is the situation in which someone says they only want to talk to you off-the-record, and maybe the problem, my problem is that I don't understand what the difference between off-the-record and on-background is, so I always end up using lots of words to make sure that the, the source and I are on the same page. But my problem, our conversation in which someone says, I'll only talk to you you know, on background, off the record, whatever, in a way that you can only use the quotes if you run them by me afterwards. And I don't, I'm happy to read people quotes for accuracy. I'm not interested usually in quoting someone in a gotcha way. And and basically, I just want to make sure like I've gotten the person's views right. But it's really easy in these situations for a source to then start to basically try to massage the quote so that it says something different from what I think they said. And I hate that. But then if you're in this moment where you have nothing on the record, you have no and you need the person's voice, you sort of have less bargaining power. I want to avoid those conversations. What's your advice for me about that? I just shouldn't agree to these setups from the to begin with, right? Well, it's as you say, that's the pickle. Because if you have nothing on the record for certain kinds of stories, you got nothing. Right. Um, so the different levels are on the record, not for attribution, which is you can use the quote, but you have to attribute it to a source close to the candidate or the candidate's you know family or something. Then this gets confusing because some people, what used to be called background, which is you can use the information but not the quotations, is what a lot of people call off the record. Right. Um, but the way I grew up, off the record meant you can't. It's it's secret. Right. It's off the record. Like no record of it happened. But um, what most people mean when they say off the record these days is deep background, which means you can use the information. Now it should be said that off the record in the old way, which was when it was considered a secret. They, the source, was telling you something because they wanted to push a storyline. They just didn't, they, you know, this is basically the way Watergate was broken apart. I mean, it was off the record, but it was obviously, it's, there are, it's not just purely for your edification. It's to try and push a storyline. It's just to do it with no fingerprints. And there are ways in which off the record conversations you know, work for the purposes of, I mean, benefit the public good. I mean, Watergate... Well, it all depends on the source and whether they're operating in good faith or not. Right. And presumably you check all that out. I mean, that was why Watergate, if you look at the timeline of those stories, took so long between stories because they had to go... They were told things off the record in the old sense, which is it's a secret, and now you got to go find it on your own. Um, And that was sometimes really, really hard to do. 
I, I until this conversation, I actually did not know the differences between not for attribution and on background. I thought those were the same. I, I when you describe well, often you it's it's a lot of the, these are used synonymously. Right. And I no, I think there work. is no agreed upon definition. So even though John has done a lovely job of laying it out, I'm going to continue to specify it every time. <laughs> so John, do you think that the Clinton campaign is is a worse uh worse partner for the press than the other campaigns or is it just that they've they expect more from her because they know it's a more professional shop and yeah. because they've worked with her before? Uh, or are they actually giving less information, more anodyne information, being more difficult to deal with? Um, I think they're running like an incumbent. I think they're running like like she's the sitting president, which means the the flow of information is not that much, you know, less than it is for a president, where that where the members of a roundtable are all handpicked, where the interaction with the press is infrequent. And on on his own terms, which is to say, you know, go do Jimmy Kimmel or go do a specific um, show, as opposed to somebody like, you know, well, any of the Republicans who are running, who not only have interviews they do, but they're, they're you know, have questions yelled at them on the road uh, and in rope lines, and who, you know, whether there's the expectation they're going to talk to somebody pretty frequently and often. Um you know, I think there is a period of um, breaking each other in with candidates and campaigns, where the campaigns always and presidencies always want to start it on their terms, and the press wants it to be on it on the press's terms, and they fight it out, and that's what we're in the middle of here. So I guess that's I, I guess we don't I I guess it's too early to render a judgment. You know, I understand her calculation for all of this. It also makes me think so much less of her and her campaign that they are so paranoid. I just, I, I mean, I know that's like such a common adjective to use about Clinton land, that it's basically a cliche. But I mean, seriously, sure, there are people with knives out, but also you just have to communicate. I mean, this is, if you want to be the president, it's, it's going to be so just disheartening to me if Hillary Clinton gets elected president and then seals herself off in a bunker somewhere and acts as if, you know, the press is a disease that she wants to stay as far away from as possible. What did you guys think about this thing Adam Nagorny did? Adam Nagorny, New York Times reporter, was sent a press release, basically, from the Clinton campaign. It was it was labeled on background background material. I don't know exactly what it was. And he then proceeded to tweet out with names attached all the information in the press release. And his view is this relationship of background, not for attribution, off the record, this is a contractual relationship that a reporter individually makes with uh, with the source. It is not something that can be declared unilaterally. If you give me information, you cannot declare it to be on background without my permission. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah. And I loved that he pushed back. I mean, there was something staged about it because the information in it was anodyne. But I think that's okay. I think so you pick a situation like that in which to push back. I people do this to me all the time where they write off the record at the top of an email. And I'm like, sorry. I mean, I, I didn't say that it was off the record. Good luck to you when I try to print that. Yeah, I think I mean, then in that case, it's a question of, you know, what kind of relationship is going on here. In other words, is it a long, are you having a, are you working on one story or are you going to have to work and work this relationship for over the course of a year and right. a half? Are you a repeat player years? or are you? And yeah. that's a case, that's a case where, 
you know, you do have to find accommodations. One of my favorite accommodations I just heard about was um, a person who was running for uh, national office and had one of these trackers following them from the opposite party. One of these people who just keeps a camera on them all the time. And after a while, you know, the campaign knew who the tracker was and kind of, you know, would help the tracker along when, like, he became part of the traveling campaign, even though his goal in life was really to catch the candidate doing something stupid. (laughs) And there were times when the candidate would be talking to a voter and the voter would like talk about a health care problem, something their family was having. And the candidate would turn to the tracker and say, can you turn off the tape? Because this person's about to lay bare some horrible thing that's happened to their family. And the tracker did. And so they had this like little arrangement where they, you know, we're going to have to live with each other in a state of constant conflict. And yet they came to some accommodation where they could both have a little space for their, you know, shared humanity. And uh, that's essentially what you're talking about in a source, you know, press relationship with a campaign. All right, let's move on to our Next sponsor, this one I'm pretty darn excited about. The GabFest is brought to you by the Sundance Now Doc Club, a new streaming service for everyone who loves documentaries. If you love documentaries the way I love documentaries, you are going to really dig Sundance Now Doc Club. It brings the human voice back to movie recommendations. I personally have recommended a whole bunch of movies on the Doc Club. There's a, there's a page of GabFest or Plots recommendations. The David Plotz documentary extravaganza. I'm going to go look. Or are you going to tell us? The documentary films are handpicked by expert programmers with unique perspectives or by cultural icons like Ira Glass or Susan Sarandon or David Plotz. I always think of those three names um, in the same breath. They go together. They definitely go together. <laughs> we all have good glasses. The Doc Club's library of documentaries includes incredible stories of all types, including crime, history, politics, music, and sex. It's a really, really great set of documentaries. And as a Sundance Now Doc Club member, you get exclusive benefits like free movie tickets, access to film festivals, award shows, and more. I, so I recommend a whole bunch of films, but I will the one I, I put at the top of my list is The Queen of Versailles. You guys surely have seen The you Queen of Versailles. You know I have not yes? watched no? it, so now I will go put it on my list. John, have you seen it? I have not, no. Oh, God. So it's this great documentary about Jackie and David Siegel. David Siegel has made a fortune in the timeshare Industry. Oh yes, I, yes, yes, yes. I remember when the uh, the Culture Gap Fest did this one. Yeah, yeah. And then so his wife Jackie, much younger wife, um, and she sets out to build the largest house in the United States. And then midway through building the house, they run into some financial problems, although not financial problems which they would overcome. But it's an incredible portrait of what the rich, how the rich live, about a particular family, about a, a particular marriage. Um, there's scenes you will never forget, like with like the 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 dog shit on the floor, or the the nanny who lived who literally lives in a dollhouse, like they had a full size dollhouse, and they didn't use it. The kids didn't care about it, and the nanny that was her bedroom. <laughs> it's the freaky. It's the movie is is it's incredible. Anyway, it's at uh, Sundance Now Doc Club, which is offering a free thirty day trial for our GFS listeners to give you a chance to try out their service. So you get your. 30-day trial at docclub.com slash gabfest. That's D-O-C-C-L-U-B dot com slash gabfest. Caitlyn Jenner. Call me Caitlyn on the cover of Vanity Fair. Photos by Annie Leibovitz. The woman who was formerly Bruce Jenner has introduced herself to the world as a woman. There's been almost universal welcome and praise. A few 
misplaced pronouns that some people got pretty worked up about. We can talk about that. A little bit of grumbling from people that she she has gotten privilege grumbling from people like Emily Bazelon that she gets hey. privilege and surgeries and status <laughs> that that other people in her position may not. <laughs> just oh, trying nice. to, just That's trying to nice. create a little friction for the for okay, the discussion. Okay, great. So, John, were you surprised by the level of enthusiasm for Caitlyn Jenner? No, because of the, I mean, it's, this for our generation was the, I mean, Bruce Jenner was a huge deal. In 1976, the country is, has gotten like a gut punch. In 1976, they weren't even sure in the bicentennial year whether people would really kind of celebrate uh, the 200th anniversary of the country's founding, because after Watergate and then Ford uh, pardoning Nixon, and then there's still the hangover after Vietnam and the oil uh, crunch, and, you know, it's a, a pretty depressing time in America. And suddenly, there's this great hero, the basically the big the biggest at the time, probably, other than maybe John Wayne and Marlon Brando um, and maybe Elvis, sort of sign of masculinity. So as a kind of American generational thing, that you could get a real great essay out of that about where we are now with this one single human. Um, That's all pretty interesting. But um, I I wasn't surprised because of the kind of it's a white hot thing in an age where white hot things really have their moments. I mean, also, let's give some credit where credit is due. She has gone through a transition at a moment when the vast majority of Americans, I think, according to polls, don't personally know someone who's transgender and put herself out there and explained in a pretty good interview with Diane Sawyer some of what was entailed. And, you know, this is like the next door of the current civil rights battle in which transgender people are asking for rights that they should have, don't have yet, legally speaking. It's still legal in most of the country to fire someone for being transgender. You don't get to serve in the military. There are these, you know, various unnecessary legal barriers in people's way that are doing real harm, not to mention just all the stigma that's traditionally been associated with. And she's helping to break through all of that. So I feel like that's the first thing we need to recognize. Right, David, you must be able you must agree with me about that, right? Well, he asked if I was surprised about the reception of it. And I'm I'm what percentage of the reception do you think uh, is represented by the views you just expressed, Emily. I think that people. Well, look, it's always so hard to say what people. It's, it's overwhelmingly the reception of the public reception. It's it's overwhelmingly that there's a lot of people who privately yes. are discomfited. Well, that's but they don't, don't want to appear to be bigots. I'm, I'm, they don't want to no, seem to like bigots. I mean, we know that that that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is I'm not sure we really know. I mean, certainly the press treatment has been incredibly sympathetic. I think it's more. I think I think we don't really know. I mean, look, I think we can imagine what the grumbling is. The grumbling from people who really don't get this is, okay, dress up, say whatever you want, but you're still a man. And I'm going to insist on that even if I, you know, humor you by changing pronouns. I mean, to me, that's just a fundamental conception of what sex and gender are. But I'm sure there is a deep current about that out there. Yeah, I think there is. But but I actually think that the easy ones on this are going to move pretty quickly. The fact that she is rich, white, and a Republican are going to really help 
in terms of getting Republicans in particular and conservative people to be like, oh, okay. And it's I think that the the easy parts of this are going to happen pretty quickly, which is that the overt discrimination and uh, the, the the nastier laws are going to uh, get taken care of, and and society will move fairly quickly in 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 that shift as the as we kind of have on marriage equality. The harder ones are going to be. Is there? Do you have rights to be funded to to make a transition? What are the rights of children, parents, and children? Like, what what is it that parents can and should do for children who uh, who express this? And those are where the the hard issues are going to be. I think the the sort of general acceptance of trans people is that's going to happen very quickly. I have a different kind of question about Caitlyn Jenner and this Vanity Fair cover, which was that. What struck me about it, alongside my cheering for her, was concern about just how glamorous it is and how she didn't let us see any part of the difficulty of transitioning, which is so hard for so many people. And clearly, you know, because she's super rich, like she was able to do it in this way where she looks like an amazing, very traditionally beautiful woman, especially as packaged and airbrushed by Vanity Fair. And look, I mean, this is hard enough, so maybe it's not fair of me to be asking for anything else from this woman. But I, there is this part of me that sort of felt a little bit like, oh my God, if I was in uh, struggling with this myself, would I just feel defeated by the perfectionism of this? And I was reading Laverne Cox, my very favorite Orange is the New Black character. I mean, that's her real name, not her character name, but I... She's I love her on that show. And she had a really thoughtful Tumblr post about this because she's also presented herself as gorgeous on magazine covers. And, you know, I think, though, is more at least in her post was more self-aware about how that can read and how that can be a difficult image um, for people who can't attain it. At first, I had the same reaction you did. And then I thought and then I realized I had no idea. I mean, and there's been some written about that, too. Um, from other people in the transgender community who've said this image makes it even harder to be kind of uh, someone who doesn't look fabulous the way she did. Right. It's also this totally binary construction of gender, right? Where we have, you know, you're Bruce Jenner, you're on the Wheaties box, this is very masculine person, and then you're Caitlyn Jenner and you're this very feminine woman. And the in-betweens of like lived reality and gender ambiguity, which to me are more interesting in which I'm certainly seeing play out on college campuses, like are totally absent from this part of the discussion. And maybe that's fine for a kind of first order public exposure because it's just easier for yes, people. It, it is. is. Right. right. It right. Is. But it, but that, it there is, is that other, fine. I mean, that whole world is going on that is still relatively hidden. And I think, and harder for many people to, you know, come to terms with, right? Like seeing someone who was a man is now like obviously a woman. Okay, fine. She still fits into the box you're expecting. Looking at people who are not clearly male or female is trickier for a lot of us. You know what is uh, strange for me? Or it's not strange. It's I, I totally noticed this, and I, I I totally date it to my first awareness about Bruce, then Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner, uh, that that she was going through this transition. Is how more frequently I see people who I probably are trans people. Uh, in just my daily life, I just uh, there's a all yes, than I used to, and I don't know agree. whether it's that that there are more people who are out in the world, and I'm and I live in an urban environment and likely to run into them, or it's just that now people are visible to me who weren't visible, uh, and I it's probably some combination of both. How how uh, 
self-conscious do we need to be about these pronoun questions? AP, the AP, Associated Press, got absolutely bazookaed because they used a heap, a male pronoun for Caitlyn Jenner in a tweet, and they realized their mistake and corrected it. But it was, it was, the response was savage. It was savage and rapid. But it, it seems to me like this is a this is a situation where people are going to make pronoun errors. I, I'm even in this conversation, I find myself discomfited. I don't really know is is trans people the right word i i think it is but maybe it's yeah, not trans not people sure. is fine and transgender is a lot better than transsexual which we which people used to use it's look pro- well i think that considering that caitlin jenner talks about making the pronoun mistake herself um it's i think helpful. that everyone needs to um calm down a little bit um and also this is quite an extraordinary change in people's lives and so that's another reason everybody should kind of mellow out uh, do you remember David growing up, Renee Richards? I wrote yeah, about her. Sure. That's right, for the Jewish Jocks book. You did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she really was a pioneer. Yeah, that was, I don't really have any more to say. <laughs> so, than well, that, we should just say just, she was, is a famous tennis player. Right. And an ophthalmologist. So the the TV show Transparent, which I, I know David has watched. I don't know if you've seen it, John. But to me, that's like an example of the kind of second order visible transitioning we're talking about. I mean, it's fiction, but it, it's it's I love that show. And the depiction of transitioning, I think, is um, really valuable. But I was also thinking about an interview that Terry Gross did on Fresh Air with Jill Soloway, the creator, in which there was pronoun confusion, but also confusion around the word parent for Jill Soloway's um, former father who has transitioned to become a woman. And then the pronoun they, which I think is actually much harder, at least for me, switching to he to she is still grammatically correct. When people ask to be called they or something else, I get all tongue tied. And that seems hard. I'm not quite sure what to do about that. Do Bruce Jenner's children now call him their father? Can you be a father who is a I woman? I think they said that they did, that they both thought of Caitlyn Jenner as a woman and still thought somehow of their father as their father. I mean, you know, we can all handle some ambiguity in our brains. Not me. Uh, <laughs> we have another. No, I'm kidding. I can. I can handle a little bit of ambiguity. We have another sponsor this week, a perfect Father's Day sponsor, friends. Harrys.com. So I think all all men here, maybe even the women, I, 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 I don't want to I don't want to discriminate here. We're taught to shave by their father. I was taught how to shave by my father. Um, were you taught how to shave by your father, John, or not? I don't think so. I think it was my older brother. Really? Well, my I specifically remember, and because I have a son who's approaching that age when he's going to have to start shaving and thinking about the 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 way my father taught me, and it, he did a really good job. I enjoyed it. Um, but now it is our turn to teach our fathers to shave better for Father's Day. Listeners to the GabFest are going to get five dollars off the limited edition Father's Day set from Harry's. Harry's, as you know, makes these in excellent razors uh, and blades. I just, in fact, reordered mine this week. Um, and and excellent uh, shaving cream and gel. So you use our code POLITICAL at checkout. The Father's Day set includes a razor, three quality blades, Harry's shaving cream, and a brand new razor stand. And you'll save $5 on your first purchase with our code POLITICAL. The limited edition Father's Day set comes in a sleek box with a customizable card. And you can engrave both the razor and the razor stand. The giftable set is shipped directly to your door or maybe your dad's door. So you, it is. Harry's has taken the stress out of finding and giving a good Father's Day gift. 
So you can get the Chrome Winston set paired with a new razor stand with a Chrome Winston handle, three blades, and the foaming shave gel. It's super easy. There's no lines. There's no hassle. Go online and do it. Go to harrys.com, and Harry's will give you that $5 off your Father's Day set with the code POLITICAL just in time for Father's Day. Harry's is giving GabFest listeners $5 off. Order by June 17th to get your set in time for Father's Day. So hurry up and act now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter coupon code POLITICAL at checkout for $5 off. Harry's, a shave good enough to give. Let's go to cocktail chatter. John, when you were like kicking back, having about 17 drinks after your your show on Sunday... He's going to have it. Are you, the question is, um, is John going to have the drinks before or after the show? But when you're having them, whenever you are, and you're talking nervously, what are you going to be talking nervously about? My chatter is about um, one of the two Medal of Honor winners uh, that were awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. Uh, World War I heroes. One was Sergeant William uh, Sherman, who was not recognized because he was Jewish. Um, for basically, he was in his bunker and just kept going in and out to rescue fallen comrades. But the other one is the one I want to spend a little more time on, which is Henry Johnson. It was amazing. African-American, um, was a porter in New York before he signed up to go fight in World War One. was part of the National Guard in New York, was enlisted, and basically because of racism, didn't see any action. Then the French said, you know, if you're not going to use um, your African-American soldiers, we could use them. So he went and fought with the French and actually saw combat. One night is, uh, is on watch with another fellow, and um, uh, the other guy's name is Needham Roberts, which who will, that'll come back into the story in a second. Um, and they are set upon, the two of them, in the middle of the night as they're on their watch, by a raiding party of Germans. And Johnson is shot 21 times. His right foot is crushed, and yet he still holds off using his rifle until it runs out of ammunition. And then his knife um, holds off anywhere from 12 to 24 Germans, killing several of them, and then goes and rescues Needham Roberts to keep him from being captured as a prisoner. Um, It's an amazing story. So Johnson is awarded uh, the highest honor by the French, gets an award from the the U.S. Army and is a part of actually a ticker tape parade, but at the end of his life is discharged without any recognition of his military injuries and ends up dying basically alone and destitute. Chuck Schumer starts working on trying to get him recognized for his Medal of Honor. And a staffer for Schumer, who I talked to this week, Caroline Wexelbaum, who was a constituent liaison who dealt with Veterans Affairs stuff in 2010, starts trying to build the case for why he should get the Medal of Honor. And what this requires is two things. One, a sign that the chain of command knew what uh, Johnson was up to. And then there was a contemporaneous account of what he'd done. The chain of command, and, the, and Schumer had tried to get him the Medal of Honor before it had failed on those tests. And so she, from 2010 on, basically starts sleuthing all over the country in military archives, looking for these two pieces of evidence. Largely in part because things start to get digitized, she starts to find the proof. One of them was um, General Pershing used to send back dispatches from the front. And in one of them, he mentions Johnson, which is a big deal. He's an African-American, but Pershing hears this story of this heroism and, and writes about it. That gets digitized, and she discovers it. Another part of the chain of command wrote a letter that then got, in 1920, read into the congressional record, which then, when it gets digitized, she's able to 
establish that other part of the chain of command. Then she has to find a contemporaneous account, and the only person who can do it is this Needham Roberts, or who's even in a position to do it, because that was the other person on the watch. And it turns out she discovers that the private collections of the letters from Needham Roberts exist, existed, but then had been sold. She tracks down and finds the letters, and it turns out Needham Roberts had written about what happened that night. And the accounts are a little bit, um, obviously, fuzzy, in part because Roberts was unconscious for part of it, um, and also because, you know, there was some of the contemporaneous telling of the story of Johnson's life. Anyway, they put together in Schumer's office a 1,258-page dossier making the case for this Medal of Honor winner, all basically because of the great research by this Caroline Wexelbaum. And that's what happened this week. He finally got the Medal of Honor. That's amazing. Emily. Chatter. What's your chatter? I have been talking a lot about an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education by Laura Kipnis, who is a professor at Northwestern. It's an essay that's called, I think, My Title IX Inquisition. And it's excellent ammunition for anyone who is having doubts about the more aggressive interpretation of Title IX that's leading the interpretation, I should say, by the Obama administration, which is leading schools to do more to investigate complaints of sexual assault and harassment. And the reason I'm saying that about Kipnis is that she wrote another essay in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, which was the basis of a retaliation complaint um, from a grad student, I believe, and maybe also an undergrad at Northwestern. And she just details this Kafkaesque, time-consuming, expensive process in which this complaint about her essay as retaliatory was taken super, super seriously. She's since been cleared of the charges, but I don't think that we can really rest assured by that result because, you know, the idea that you can be retaliated against by someone who has no supervisory authority over you for speech that's otherwise lawful just seems like a real problem, especially in the context of free speech in a university. And Kipnis does a great job of just showing how these internal processes can seem um, sinister and and just incredibly secret in this way that it's very frustrating. If you are trying to stick with Title IX um, in concept, as I have been, to read about this misuse of the law is truly disheartening. And also, Laura is just such a great writer, so I really recommend that essay. Oh, and I guess I should say I got to come in as a guest on the Culture Fest to talk about it this week, which was super exciting since I am a big fan of that show. Yes, you were very good. That's nice of you. I enjoyed that. I actually have undergone a sweeping change in in my feeling about this chatter between the time I thought I was going to do it and now the time I'm actually doing it. So about John Paulson, who's a hedge fund quadrillionaire who has announced a $400 million gift to Harvard to establish a school of engineering and applied science and uh, has been absolutely savage. Malcolm Gladwell, who rarely tweets, just took to Twitter yesterday to to batter um, Paulson for giving Harvard, an institution which has a $30 billion endowment, another $400 million. If there's any institution in the world that does not need another $400 million, it's probably Harvard. And the idea of this edifice complex of building yet another school, another uh, more more funding for this already excessively wealthy, pompous, arrogant institution. Um, 
And I was all over that. I was like, oh, yeah, this is that's so true. It's so ridiculous. What an evil gift should be. Why can't we all be Bill Gates? And then I then I start to think about it and I realized, you know, maybe this is a great gift because if you think of of the the role of major university, particularly major university, American universities in contributing huge changes in human society, particularly around thing around engineering and the sciences it's significant like that is where big shifts in how things accomplished come from both students who who are there and drop out students who become graduate students and actual professors and we actually as a country don't spend as much on engineering and the applied sciences as we probably should if you've seen those statistics about engineering graduates in india and china there are just so many 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 more engineering graduates in those countries and if 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 you believe, as I do, that engineering and the applied sciences are absolutely critical to human well-being in the long term and that that's where the, the changes, the human adaptations are going to help us with climate change, that are going to help us uh, you know, feed more people, that are going to help us uh, make more, allow more people to move, to build more efficient cities, uh, are going to come from engineering and the applied sciences, then it makes a huge amount of sense for America's big universities to invest in it, to spend on it. To, to overpay some professors and to to get more students into these fields. So I am, John Paulson, I salute you. This is, uh, I think it's great. I think this is a really good use of money and and not the waste that, that everyone says it is. All right. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Not today, though. Today it was Joel Meyer, who's also our managing producer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GapFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. And our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Check the Twitter feed and the Facebook page. I'm sure we'll the, – the cocktail tickets, I'm sure we'll post there that those are on sale at some point. Uh, and our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes commenting and rating really helps us. Remember, slate.com slash GabFestDC for our July 29th show in D.C. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz, wishing John a really great launch on Sunday in many 25 years, 25 years of facing the nation. Can we um, do one other thing, which is give a shout out to um, uh, a podcast friend who has um, launched a podcast Recently, he's a struggling performer in the uh, public space, but the Late Show podcast just launched. Oh, oh Stephen Colbert's it went podcast? Up. It's up? Sure. Stephen's? It's up. The June 4th, 19-minute episode one is exists oh my in God. the Oh, my God. I can't wait to go but hear it. Look, it's going to be, that's going to get to number one in iTunes without our, that's not, that's going to get know, there without our help. that does not need our help. It doesn't need our yeah, help. sure, let's give a shout but out But I it. mean, it's a nice thing to say for, you know, for a person who's been nice to our show. It's a yeah. part of the, it's a part of the human task. I'm so excited. Steven Mazeltov. That's so great. Wow. Have you, I, I gotta go, I'm going to get it right now. I'm, in fact, I'm not even listening to you. Hey there, I'm Karina Kolodny. And I'm Noah Michelson. We're the co-hosts of the HuffPost Love and Sex podcast. Each week, we start with a single question. 
And then we look to experts, real-life experiences, and listeners like you to find the answers. Questions like, how will artificial intelligence change the future of sex? Or, what is going to a sex party really like? June 4th will mark our inaugural penis episode, which will tell you literally everything you've wanted to know about man's best friend. So abandon your inhibitions and download and subscribe to the HuffPost Love and Sex podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.